Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And welcome to our 500th podcast, which I'm pleased to begin by thanking Chaos Design, Marvin S., Tim H., Farista, Jean-Pierre W., Lynn N., and Poodle Chemist. Also, uh, we received another anonymous Bitcoin donation from a fellow saloner who made a clever donation on 420 Day. And uh, anyway, I want to thank you one and all. Your donations are greatly appreciated. And I also want to thank all the rest of our fellow saloners who have made donations over the past 11 years, without uh, which these podcasts wouldn't have been able to continue. And I thank you and all of our fellow saloners who tune in to listen to these podcasts each week, because you are the Psychedelic Salon. Now, originally I hadn't planned on doing anything special for this 500th episode. After all, I already celebrate our anniversary twice each year, once on March 17th, when uh, podcast number one was posted in 2005, and again on June 10th, when I uh, went back in 2005 and began numbering these podcasts and decided that, uh, well, maybe I'd keep this up for a little while. And June 10th, by the way, was also my mother's birthday, and so it just felt good to use that date as the uh, salon's birthday as well. Also, uh, since my friend KMO beat me to number 500, even though I had a head start on him, I figured that I would just uh, let my own number 500 go by without making a big deal of it. But then after listening to KMO's podcasts uh, number 500 and 501, I was inspired to uh, go ahead and do a little something myself. Now, if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to those podcasts from KMO's Sea Realm, I recommend that you do so, uh, particularly if you're an old-timer here in the salon, because uh, he had recent messages from some people who are also old friends of the salon. It was really great, once again, to hear the voices of Dope Fiend, Sancho and Cody, and Black Beauty, among others. Of course, almost every week we all get to hear the lovely voice of Black Beauty, or BB as she is also known, just before my final remarks. The only uh, main character that was missing uh, in those podcasts of KMOs was my dear friend Queer Ninja, whose opening words, easy now, (laughs) always put me in such a good mood. However, since KMO already covered those bases for us, I thought that I ought to do something different. But with over 499 talks featuring more than 100 speakers, well, I have a lot to choose from. So for this program today, I decided that I would simply do a little reminiscing about several of the elders who I've featured here in the salon, but who, uh, sadly, are no longer with us. It wasn't easy to decide who to include, but in order to keep this program within a manageable time span, I've had to leave out some legendary elders, such as Krishnamurti and Aldous Huxley. But I think that you're going to enjoy hearing again from Timothy Leary, Myron Stoloroff, Gary Fisher, Fraser Clark, Terrence McKenna, and Sasha Shulgin. So what I'm going to do right now is to play a brief clip from one of the talks that I've podcast of each of them and then come back to comment on it and introduce the next speaker. 
Now, there is something important that I hope you have already picked up on here. Out of all the voices that you will be hearing in this podcast, the only voice from a person who is still alive is going to be my own. (laughs) I have to admit that I found growing old to be somewhat tiresome and uncomfortable. It does come with one great advantage, however. And that is, if you are the last one standing in whatever story you're telling, then you can tell it however you want, because there's no longer anybody left to contradict you, which is uh, also the way human history is often recorded, by the last one standing. That said, uh, I don't think that I'll be making up any stories that I tell you here today, and I'm going to try to keep my comments only to my own interaction with these elders, so I hopefully won't be inventing any history here. Now, to begin with, of all the people that you'll hear from in this podcast, the only one with whom I never had any personal interactions was Dr. Timothy Leary. Like most people who lived through the 60s, I first heard of Timothy Leary when he was released from his contract at Harvard University. And there's a really excellent story about that event told by Myron Stolaroff in one of the Lone Pine Stories podcasts, Uh, but I'm not going to get into that today. However, getting back to the 60s, on that January day in 1967, when Dr. Leary took the microphone at the Human Bee-In in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and famously said, turn on, tune in, and drop out, well, I almost got to see him because that morning my wife, my son, and I had been in the park. But we left before all the action began because all of the hippies who had begun to gather there were making us nervous. You see, at the time, I was in the Navy, and my ship was in the dockyards over at Hunter's Point. On Saturday mornings, it was our custom to feed the ducks and geese in the pond at Golden Gate Park. But that particular morning, we left early because with my military haircut, a wife, and a three-year-old son, well, we just didn't seem to fit in at the time. But I'm here to tell you that in my heart of hearts, That was the moment that being in the Navy and knowing that within a few months our ship would be off the coast of Vietnam, engaged in that feudal war, well, that was the moment in which I realized that following the herd, going along with the powers that be, was a truly bad decision, and it was uh, one that took me many years to overcome. But enough about me. Now let's listen to Dr. Timothy Leary speaking to a young crowd in Santa Barbara, California in 1982. And this is from podcast number 175, The Intelligent Use of Psychedelic Drugs. Here's Tim Leary. Oh, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How about that, huh? Well, I think it is fantastic that we're here tonight. <laughs> you know, it's, a t- it's 1982. This is the year of doom and gloom, isn't it? <laughs> and here we have assembled on the banks of the Pacific Ocean with Venus burning a golden hole in the velvet sky up there. The moon's almost full. <laughs> And um, we've assembled to discuss the intelligent use of drugs. <laughs> I think the world should take note. 
I think you should applaud yourself for being here. How about that, huh? <laughs> so, uh, the key to uh, evolution in any species is swarming. And you've got enough intelligent members of any species together decide they're going to move in one direction into the future. It's going to happen. So the more swarms like this, the better. Now, we are not alone tonight uh, because behind us and in front of us, there are many generations of intelligent women and men who have met throughout the centuries to discuss what we're going to talk about tonight, the intelligent use of drugs or how to access your brain uh, efficiently to help yourself develop. Now, uh, you know... Uh, People like us sometimes get a bad reputation <laughs> in places like Iran or Judeo-Christian America and so forth. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we're led to believe that we're not somehow straight arrow. <laughs> so I want you to remember to recall what you know anyway when you walk out of here tonight with your shoulders back and your eyes looking up to that beautiful star-filled sky that we represent the aristocratic exploring elite of our species, and we always have. Because <laughs> we're all united here on the eternal quest of uh, inner exploration, uh, discovery, uh, the adventure of knowing yourself, of stimulating growth, personal evolution, and so on. It started, what, two, three, four thousand years ago, back in the banks of the Ganges, uh, when Perhaps for the first time in recorded history, women and men got together and said, hey, there's more than just the caste system, there's more than just survival, root animal uh, existence. The purpose of human life is to go within and find out who you are. The purpose of human life is to grow. The Sanskrit word, as uh, Andre tells us in that funny movie, the uh, Sanskrit word for to be is to grow. Back there in the Ganges, um, several thousand years ago, this idea developed, and you know, the first recorded book of human uh, development, of human religion for that matter, of the Vedas, and the first book of the Vedas is a hymn in homage of Soma, and you all know what Soma is. Then we popped up again, uh, well, I could go on forever telling us about how great we are in the past, we popped up again <laughs> in Athens, remember that wonderful time in Athens, when that was a hippie time, when everyone went running around saying, I'm a philosopher. It's up to me to figure out, you know, uh, what are the elements or what life is all about. Uh, um. You remember Socrates said uh, the purpose of, of an intelligent human life is self-discovery. Now, how come that funny little peninsula there, yet Sparta, a few miles away, like San Luis Obispo, which was given over to military engineering, <laughs> Sparta's Gordon Liddy's sort of town, how come places like Athens and Santa Barbara pop up now and then in human history uh, where people have the courage and the ambition to uh, pose these basic questions? Well, just north of, uh, of Athens is a place called uh, Eleusis. And you well know, know the Eleusinian mysteries for hundreds and hundreds of years were practiced there. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, most of those great philosophers went through the mysteries there. And uh, recently, uh, drug ethologists and uh, scholars like Robert Gordon Watson and Allegra have uh, to told us that the key to the Eleusinian Mysteries was a ceremonial plant, which is probably related to LSD. Now, we popped up, uh, we popped up throughout history in France, uh, the Hashishins, Baudelaire, Gautier, um, Verlaine, 
Um, we popped up in England, uh, Wordsworth, um, um, Dick Coleridge, um, Nietzsche. Nietzsche was over there in Germany. You know, he was very sickly. He used to say when he went to see Nietzsche, he was like um, going into a, a drugstore. <laughs> I wonder why he got all those crazy ideas. Uh, now, you're never going to read about the history... You're never going to read about the history of brain exploration in the textbooks in institutions like this, tax-supported, run by academic politicians to keep young people serenely and productively stupid. You have to, you know, uh, it's an intelligence test. If you want to get smart, you have to learn how to get smart. You have to look through history and you'll find the fingerprints, the footprints, the uh, uh, vapor trails of people like us <laughs> who have been doing what we're doing here tonight, uh, trying to uh, learn how to grow and develop and make it a better planet. Um, you know, American history is filled with people who you knew how to use drugs intelligently. Robert Louis Stevenson, Edgar Allan Poe. You know, Edgar Allan Poe is actually considered in Europe to be the ultimate uh, North American writer, much more famous there than here. Um, the, um, coming from Harvard, as I used to, it was a source of great amusement to realize that um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who really started the American Transcendental Movement, who, went, who got kicked out of Harvard, I think it was 1838, because he went there and said, don't go to those big Unitarian and Presbyterian churches in Boston. You're going to find God within, uh, transcend this outer stuff. They didn't want him around. They kept him away for 38 years. Uh, how come he got that way? Well, it turned out that he, along with Margaret Fuller, our first great feminist woman, had gone over to Europe and hung out with uh, the Wordsworths um, and the Hashishines in um, in Paris. And it's, we have well-documented stories of how they, they turned on uh, intelligently to pursue the philosophic quest. My, my favorite Harvard uh, intellectual is a man named William James, who uh, actually founded the psychology department there. He's considered to be the father of American psychology. At the age of 13, according to his brother Henry's um, memoirs, William James was in France. Now talk about teenage punks. <laughs> At the age of 13, <laughs> William James, uh, coming from one of our top Brahmin Boston families, was experimenting with all sorts of curious and strange brain drugs in France. He later wrote the book, Varieties of Literature Experience, um, in which he said over and over again, no attempt at the metaphysical quest, no attempt to probe the philosophic wonders of the cosmos can be undertaken by those that don't have some experience with uh, uh, chemicals. In his case, it was uh, peyote nitrous oxide. So... <laughs> One of the reasons that I wanted to play that for you today is to remind you that in your pursuit of expanding your consciousness, you come from a long line of Western artists, scientists, and intellectuals. You most definitely aren't a freak. In fact, just as Dr. Leary told those students in 1982, you should applaud yourself for being here. You come from a long line of explorers, or uh, as Timothy just said, you are part of the aristocratic exploring elite of our species. And uh, should you want to hear more from Dr. Leary, you'll find that here in the salon there are now over 50 programs in which he is featured. And I should point out that all of the Timothy Leary audio in these podcasts came directly from his own archive, thanks to Dennis Berry, 
the keeper of his archive for many years, and uh, also a thanks to Bruce Damer, who put me in contact with Dennis. She is the person who gave me copies of all of the Leary talks that had been digitized before his archive was transferred to the New York City Library, where it resides today. I also want to say again how grateful I am to Dennis Berry, Zach Leary, and the Leary Trust, who, during one of the salon's difficult periods, made a sizable grant to keep us going. So, while I never had any opportunity to meet Timothy Leary myself, in many ways he's played a significant role in these podcasts. Now, a lot of people most likely think that it was Timothy Leary who first brought LSD to America, but that's actually incorrect. It was in 1960, I believe, that Leary experienced a psychedelic for the first time, and that was on magic mushrooms in Mexico. From there, after a stop in Los Angeles where he tried LSD for the first time with Gary Fisher as a sitter, he returned to Harvard and, along with Ram Dass, began the famous Harvard Psilocybin Project. As you know, uh, word about magic mushrooms first entered the public domain with R. Gordon Wasson's famous story in Life magazine. However, even before that, work involving LSD was already being done in North America. In fact, in the early 1950s, Humphrey Osmond and others were using LSD in a clinical setting to treat various disorders, including alcoholism. And one of the key players in that whole scene was the charismatic man that many people call the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. And that was the legendary Al Hubbard. Now, although Al Hubbard is mentioned in several podcasts, it's only in podcast number 235 that we actually get to hear him speak. And that recording was made on the day after Al, Humphrey Osmond, and Myron Stolaroff had taken LSD together, and this was their uh, decompression talk. But what I would like to play for you right now is part of a conversation between Myron Stolaroff and Gary Fisher that began with a discussion about Al Hubbard, who also happened to be a central figure in Myron's life. Myron Stolaroff, whose patented discovery while at Ampex led to the audio and videotape revolution, was also featured in a really fascinating book by John Markoff that's titled What the Dormouse Said, How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry. And in it, Markoff uh, credits Myron with being one of the four people who were most responsible for shaping the 60s counterculture and the personal computer industry. It's a really fascinating read if you're into books these days. Anyway, let's now join Myron and Gary for a brief discussion of Al Hubbard and of Myron's psychedelic research project in Menlo Park. One of the questions... <coughs> that uh, Gary asked me, which I hope you all will be interested in, is how did I get mixed up with Hubbard in the first place? And it's really a fascinating story to me, anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'd gotten acquainted with uh, Gerald Hurd in Southern California, who's one of the world's really great mystics and a marvelous author, if you've read his books. And uh, I was very taken with him and... Uh, uh, well, I was with Ampex Corporation and went to Southern California frequently, and every time that I went down there in business, I tried to see, uh, 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 <coughs> I tried to see uh, Gerald. Uh, uh, so one time I was visiting him, 
and he started telling me about LSD and taking it and what a remarkable thing it was and all the openings that it provided. And I thought, my God, what, what's a mystic doing taking drugs anyway? <laughs> and uh, so I didn't do much more about it, but then Alex Parnitoff was the head of Ampex Corporation and he'd gone to Canada and somehow or other he'd run into Hubbard. And he came back and told me all kinds of stories that uh, Hubbard had told him about the work he was doing. So I thought, well, gee whiz, maybe I'll get in touch with him. So I wrote Al a letter, and much to my amazement, two or three months later, he's, there he is on the steps of, of, uh, of Ampex. So we got acquainted, and I was sucked in immediately. He, <laughs> he's a very gregarious person, full of fun and laughter. And the thing that, that got me... Um, you know, I was all shut up inside myself and uh, worried about this and that and the other thing, and I could never really feel anybody. But in his presence, I could feel his warmth. And uh, especially as I got to know him and spent more time with him, I just thought it was great just to be in his presence. And he's full of stories and all kinds of interesting things. So uh, it only took that one meeting for me to make up my mind that I wanted to go to Canada where he lived and uh, have LSD. And my first LSD experience was just absolutely remarkable. So uh, I think I was ventured to say right off the bat that that's the greatest discovery man has ever made. Of course, I don't know much else what other man <laughs> discovered, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm willing to stand by that. So that's how I got into it. <clears throat> And uh, Hubbard came down, introduced him to some folks, some that we got along with, some that he didn't. Uh, but in the end, uh, I just saw that I had to spend the rest of my life as much as possible in doing something about LSD. So I used to visit him quite a bit. <clears throat> he got together with Ross McLean in Canada. Ross McLean was a psychiatrist who had a, a mental hospital. And they ministered LSD there, and I visited them there. And uh, after a while, I got to the point where I felt we had to do something, and so we started the clinic in Menlo Park, where for three and a half years, uh, we gave people LSD, uh, some mescaline, a little bit of psilocybin at, at times, until the FDA finally put a stop to everything in uh, 1965. So that's, that's how I got involved. <laughs> And, uh, Myron, uh, tell us how uh, Al Hubbard, because how did he get a hold of LSD, or how was he introduced to it? I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly who the people were that he got involved with. Uh, <clears throat> he did run into someone in the Vancouver area uh, who introduced him to LSD, and it only took one shot with him. He had an amazing opening, a tremendously spiritual experience, and he felt actually he'd been given a mission to uh, really spread this around. Fortunately, at the time, he was very well off financially. He had a very close friend who was wealthy, who uh, he gave LSD to his friend, and his friend had the same kind of opening and was willing to support him in anything that he wanted to do. So he began to devote a lot of time meeting people, getting acquainted, 
and he was very good at sizing people up and assessing whether they make uh, good candidates, and he was very good at supporting people through the experience. So he began to spread the word the word around, and uh, he covered an awful lot of ground. My connection was secondhand to him because my mentor was a guy by the name of Nick Shawalis, who was my brother-in-law, and he was a research uh, psychiatrist at the uh, University of Saskatchewan. And um, at the time. Uh, they were studying LSD, and it was called at that time a psychotoma medic, uh, mimicking psychosis. So they were uh, giving people LSD, thinking they would discover what were the structures and the dynamics of psychosis. And Al went over and said, it's easy to make people crazy. What's hard is to make them sane. And LSD will make them sane and won't make them crazy. But if you give it the wrong... If you don't give it in the proper environment, it will make them crazy. And so that's uh, how, and I don't know how he got uh, to the Saskatchewan. It was called the Saskatchewan Group on Schizophrenia. That was the name of their project. And that was Hoffer and Osman. And then uh, my brother-in-law, Nick Shawalis, and then his partner, uh, Duncan Blewett. And I had my first experience there with them in 1959 before any of you were born. <laughs> and I got born that day that I put mine in my first session. Um, and Myra, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, the work that was done at Menlo Park? Well, I'll be glad to do that, but I'd like to in- interject a little bit of what you just said about Duncan and Blood, because uh, <clears throat> I- I'm not sure how the connection was made, but... Uh, Al went to Central Canada and met with uh, uh, with Hoffer and Osman, and he'd heard about their approach, which uh, really wasn't recognizing what LSD would do at all. But somehow he met uh, Blewett, and and he's very sensitive, and Blewett's a very open, warm person. He recognized right away that that Blewett would be a good candidate, so he gave Blewett LSD. And uh, he was off with Osmond and Hoffer. And uh, he went in and looked, looked at Blewett, and Blewett was just having the time of his life. <laughs> so he went out to see uh, Hoffer and Osmond. He says, said, you know, uh, this, this guy Blewett is, is, is having a psychosis. You better come in and see if you can get him out of it. <laughs> so they walked in. <laughs> And immediately, Blood started laughing and laughing. And, and Al says, see, see, can you get him out of it? And he would just laugh all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, anyhow, uh, Hubbard worked with uh, McLean at his hospital there for several years, and I got to visit that. And uh, uh, then Hubbard, well, he's not an easy guy to get along with. So. <laughs> he very much likes things his own way, and so I'm not sure what the conflict got between he and uh, uh, he and McLean, but he decided to set up his own uh, treatment place in downtown Vancouver, and that went on for a while. And I thought, gee whiz, we ought to do the same in Menlo, uh, in California. So uh, I put the necessary things together. Fortunately, I accumulated a little cash, and uh, we set up a place for uh, uh, 
really was set up pretty much the way Al uh, designed it. Uh, very nice furniture, comfortable setting, uh, beautiful pictures on the wall, uh, a lot of artifacts for people to look at to stimulate them in various ways. And then, of course, one of his uh, main tricks was to have people bring uh, pictures of their family, uh, their, their parents, their siblings, uh, their marriage partners, and so on. Uh, because looking at that under the influence uh, brings is tremendously revealing. And he had another, uh, several really good pictures, too, that uh, actually one, one just really opened me wide open. Well, I, I don't know how much time... Same, is that well. same Veronica's veil? Yeah. 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 This kind of oh, <laughs> hell. I use it thousands of times. <laughs> it's worn out. It's a... Um, it's a well, hell was a Catholic. And um, so it was... Um, the setup that I uh, created for my work was exactly what they had in Menlo Park because it's what they had in Saskatchewan. So we were all uh, descendant, you know, benefactors of, of Al's um, uh, insights. And um, it's uh, when, my understanding is when Christ was carrying the cross, he fell and Veronica wiped his brow with her handkerchief. And then it was the uh, and then the next day on the handkerchief was the image of uh, uh, Christ and there's, there's an awesome painting called Saint Veronica's Veil and um, um, most powerful thing we we used it every session and you know when they used it with me I was not happy with Christians I'm telling you I mean I had a family of Christians and they were all creepy. <laughs> and um, so I wasn't about to look at it, you know. But uh, Nick, you know, every hour or so, he'd pass it to me again. And, no, I'm not ready for that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so finally, uh, thank God, I looked at it. And uh, it was an overpowering experience to, uh, uh, to experience what uh, uh, Christ's love is. And um, I was astounded. I was absolutely astounded. Um, so that was um, work for me, and I thought if it works for me, hell can work for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're certainly right. In, in my case, I'll just elaborate briefly. I've covered this in, in, the, in the book, but um, I looked at this figure, and one of the things about it is <clears throat> one of these pictures where you look, and the eyes are open. And then you keep looking, the eyes closed, did that happen with you? <clears throat> so I saw the eyes closed, and I went, oh my God, something's wrong with me. How, why is he closing his eyes? Because the picture, when you're under LSD, is so alive, it's almost like a living person in front of you. It is. And so I looked again, and then all of a sudden, there was a swish, and I was looking at a female face. Oh my God, what's happening here? And all of a sudden, swish, another face. And then, in the next few minutes, a thousand faces of all variety of mankind went by. And I said, this is every man. I'm Jewish, mind you. In the words of I was. That's what I'm talking about.
As you most likely know already, if you are a long-time saloner, that talk was recorded at one of Kathleen Wirt's famous salons in Venice, California. And should you want to learn more about those salons, you can listen to podcast number 443, which is a talk about her salon that was actually given by Kathleen at one of Ashley Booth's salons in Los Angeles. Also, you can listen to podcast 361, which is titled Caitlin's Salon, and that's a reading from a chapter in my novel in which I fictionalize Kathleen's wonderful salons. And although my reading is fiction, well, much of the background in the story is authentic. Before I forget it, uh, one of the things that Myron and Gary just spoke about, the painting titled Veronica's Veil, deserves a little more discussion, I think. First of all, you don't need to be under the influence of a psychedelic to see the eyes close and open. It's quite amazing, actually. And the other thing is that, as you no doubt guessed, it was only a print and not the actual painting that they were using. Now, I don't know how many times Al Hubbard used that print in psychedelic sessions before giving it to Myron to use at Menlo Park, but I do know that Myron showed it to over 300 people who were under the influence, and from what he told me, it was almost without exception a most memorable experience for the participants. Now, today, that print is on a bookshelf here in my office. Myron gave it to me many years ago, but I have to admit that although I've stared at it quite a few times, the truth is that I never had the courage to look at it while I was under the influence of LSD or some other psychedelic. After listening to Myron's experience of it, and Myron was a Jew, then listening to Gary tell of how profound an impact that it had on him, Well, I, uh, having been raised a Catholic and still working hard to overcome my childhood brainwashing, I was afraid that it might have some kind of a weird effect on me that caused me to return to the Catholic Church. (laughs) And that's a risk that I'm not willing to take, so it just sits out of sight on my bookshelf. Now, I had planned here on telling you how I first met Myron and how my wife and I spent a week in the North Woods with Myron, his wife Jean, Duncan Blewett, and his wife Jane. But I want to get on with today's program, and so those stories, I guess, would probably take the rest of our time and more. I'll have to uh, skip them for now, I guess. I do, however, uh, want to mention Myron's archive. During the course of his research in Menlo Park... Myron and his staff took uh, around 350 people on their first LSD trip. But unlike many current studies, the Menlo Park group investigated the effects that LSD had on engineering, scientific, and artistic projects. And in the book, What the Dormouse Said, you will learn that many of the people who are the acknowledged founders of today's personal computer industry were also participants in the Menlo Park research. Without a doubt, uh, psychedelics played a big role in moving computers out of their big glass cages and onto our desktops. Sadly, uh, sometime around 1986, when the Analog Drug Act was passed, Myron became, uh, well, somewhat despondent about all of the psychedelic research that had already been conducted, but which now, he thought, was at an end forever. So, when his former administrative assistant called to say that she was moving to an apartment and would no longer have room to store all of the records, uh, the records of what happened with those 350 people, uh, and the work that they did while under the influence of LSD, 
Well,、uh, Myron, being somewhat downhearted at the time, told her to throw them all away, which she did. It's also important, however, to note that Myron and Jean were part of the research group led by the Shulgins, and from which all of those wonderful experience reports that are now available in PCall and TCall came. Now it was around 2001 when Myron told me the story about the Menlo Park participant files, but on a hunch I asked him about the records from the human research that he did with the Shulgins. You see, for each of those one-half-page trip reports in the Shulgins books, Myron typed up a complete report of 12 pages or more of the actual experience for each of those people. So I asked him where those records were. He smiled and said. Well, when the government started cracking down on MDMA, I decided that I'd better put them somewhere safe. So my neighbor agreed to store them in his barn, but he doesn't know what's in those boxes. At the time, I just sort of filed this away, but then a few years later, Myron also showed me what was in his old dilapidated shed, and I was amazed to find,、uh, well, a lot of records from the Menlo Park research. In fact, it was almost everything except the now destroyed participant files. Then another few years passed, and by then Myron,、uh, sadly, wasn't Myron anymore. He would visit. He was happy, and he smiled a lot. But his memory had left him. Now, one afternoon during a visit, I asked Jean if Myron had ever retrieved the records from his neighbor's barn, and she was surprised to hear that he'd stored them there. Apparently,、uh, Myron hadn't told her that he'd done this. She just assumed that they were in the old shed along with everything else. Well, long story short, we retrieved those records and spent several days having a great time reading through them. So now I'll cut to the chase. A few days ago, Jean called to tell me that Myron's entire archive of over 5,000 now meticulously maintained and indexed documents has found a home alongside the Shulgin archive. And if I'm not mistaken, they may now be found at the University of California, Berkeley. So the story has a happy ending after all. Well, I've already gone on a lot longer than I planned, so I'm going to try and shorten my comments from here on out. In a moment, I'm going to play some more of that recording of Gary at Kathleen's salon. And Gary Fisher was one of the most influential people ever to conduct psychedelic research, and yet he is one of the least known. He was a close friend of mine, and in future podcasts, I'm sure that I'll be telling you more about him. But in short, it was Gary Fisher who established the protocols that Tim Leary built upon when he worked at Harvard, and it was Gary Fisher who took Timothy Leary on his first LSD trip. And Gary, along with his wife and three daughters, were also part of Leary's group that lived in Mexico, the Caribbean, and ultimately at Millbrook. When it comes to the early stories about LSD, I think you'll find that Gary Fisher often played a very prominent role. So now let's return to Kathleen's salon and listen in as Gary Fisher talks about those early years and about the research he did with severely disabled children who were under the influence of psychedelics. It was very interesting too to see sort of the net how LSD was networked. Around、uh, the country, it did get into、uh, very well-known people were turned on by Claire Booth Luce、uh, was one of them. She had quite a remarkable experience, 
And I don't know if you know, like Henry Lewis, he was a pretty, um, you know, broomstick up his ass kind of guy. And uh, so she gave him acid. And he was a very devout Catholic. And she said he was 15 hours on his knees praying that he would survive. <laughs> but, uh, and a lot of the Hollywood people uh, got involved in the networking. Uh, Cary Grant was one of them, particularly. Uh, and, um, but there was a... Um, um, and uh, people, uh, hence of different kinds of industries, uh, um, I was familiar with. But I, I turned on a few of them, too. And it was very interesting how, uh, like, one session would change a whole how a whole company was run. Uh, I turned this guy on. He was really a toughie. But he had something there that he was intrigued by uh, my whole attitude. He couldn't figure out what. And I said, well... I was an uptight, really. I mean, all I was was one big IQ walking around before I could <laughs> It was just like I was nothing but brain. And I was a basket case. And so I told him that. And I guess he thought, well, hell, if it you know, made you into a human being, maybe it can make me into a human being. <laughs> and uh, he did. And he owned his own company. And he changed that whole company around where people were teaching people below them uh, what their uh, skills were and what their knowledge was. So everybody in the company was teaching somebody below them to take over their jobs eventually. It was an amazing thing, and they didn't have hours anymore. People would come in and work when they wanted to. And um, uh, it became a real family. And this was from one guy taking LSD. All the employees never had LSD, um, make that clear, but just from that he owned the company and the changes that he instituted. And, of course, I was very instrumental in suggesting to him what kinds of things could be done. The atmosphere in that place was just amazing. And there was another place down in San Diego where the guy who owned the company uh, was turned on, and he also changed his whole company the way the whole thing ran. And then they started doing profit sharing, and, and um, they just became like a big extended family. So there's all kinds of history. Okay. What were the results of the positive? Right, what were some of the things? That well, um, what was so remarkable was that now I should tell you a little bit uh, how sick these kids were. They were in a back ward, ward in the hospital. Uh, they did not relate to each other. Many of them were in camisoles 24 hours a day, tied up because they were violent. Um, most of them didn't communicate. Um, many of them just did the whirling and bumping into themselves and other people. Uh, the place was pandemonium. It was like uh, cartoons of like bedlam that, from the Middle Ages. It was just... Um, just trying to keep the place clean was all the staff could do. There wasn't really any treatment for them. And, you know, this was in the very early... This is the late 50s, so they weren't any of the medications available either. Well, the first patient that we did, uh, the psychiatrist, he said, I said, well, like, who should we start with? And he said, 
well, Nancy, she's dying, so why don't you start with her? Because if she dies, you know, there won't be any loss because she's dying anyway. She had one of those where she couldn't, where she was so withdrawn that even if they injected her uh, with nutrients, her body wouldn't um, absorb them. She would slough off anything. And she was a skin and bones. Uh, she weighed, you know, like 40 pounds or something, and she was black and blue. She looked like a skeleton, and she was uh, she was um, 11, and she was tied down 24 hours a day. If she was let loose, she would uh, tear her eyeballs out or you know mash herself. So that was our first patient. Oh God! And uh, so I thought, well. I was always a, you know, a risk taker. <laughs> so, and, um, so, you know, I gave them the same doses that we were giving adults. I, we didn't, I didn't give them any less. We were using 500 mics with them. <laughs> because the idea was, you know, you have to use enough to get the jet propulsion going so that they don't get into conflicts. But you just, like, they, they, they don't have any control over stopping it. And uh, so she started uh, feeling the effects of it after about 20, 25 minutes. We did it IM. And um, so she started groaning and howling. And we had um, a room set up where we did all our sessions. It was actually the visitor's room that we used for sessions. And um, she started howling. It was like an animal that was wounded. And uh, howled and howled and howled. It was treacherous to listen to it. We would hold her, do everything under the sun, nothing. And so finally, after about six hours, my frustration, I took her and looked at her and just screamed at her, Nancy, how fucking long are you going to scream and moan like this? I can't take it anymore. (laughs) And she stopped and looked at me, and she had a lisp, and she said, Gowie, I have a long way to go, so just leave me to hell alone. <laughs> and she went back to howling again. That's the first communication she had ever made with anybody. Wow. Mm-hmm. And from then on, boy, what a trip we had with her, because she was so bright, and she was a challenge. But, uh, you know, after a number of sessions, she was having experiences like all the sucks they would have. You know, like... Um, you know, like it was uh, <laughs> uh, one day we were uh, going down and she said well the kids all knew when we were going to have a session all the kids that were in the, in the project all wanted to be their turn you know they didn't want to wait and so she was bustling down there and getting in there and uh, so one of the other kids uh, was trying to get in and she said you know she says, you don't belong in this room. This is where we get to see God. <laughs> and uh, they would verbalize. They would verbalize completely. And they would talk about, you know, we're all one and God is love and, you know, all the stuff that people talk about. And these were kids, you know, young, young kids who were, had never been functional in their life. So it was amazing. The, they, they had the same results that anybody else did. It took, because they would go back, you know, you go here, here, and then you come back. And, you know, but we did as many as, I think, uh, 
many as like 19 or 21 sessions or something. Gary, can you tell a story about the girl that you had to tell that he was being shut down by the government? And, and oh, yeah. Oh, that was awful. She was an amazing gal. I just adored her. She was uh, uh, about 14. Very, very... She was crippled and she was blind. And uh, her skin was all diseased. And uh, she uh, was a twirler. And all she would do was twirl all day long and bang into things. And she would sort of warble as she twirled. And she was always black and blue. So every once in a while, you know, she would have to be tied down for a while because she would be so self-destructive. She had the most awesome experiences uh, that I've ever sat with of anybody. I mean, she was amazing. I'll always remember her hands because when she would break through into transcendental consciousness, for lack of a better word, her hands became healing hands. And I'd love to just sit there and have her touch me. It was just awesome to, to feel her. And uh, all the sitters wanted to be in on Patty's sessions because we got so much out of it. And she would touch us. And she was wonderful. Um, and she became very functional. She stopped all the twirling. She talked coherently. She, was, she would help other kids on the ward. She would try to help them. And she was blind. But she became a real caretaker on the war. Well, finally, when we couldn't uh, do the sessions anymore, I had to tell all these kids. So I had to tell her, and so she listened, and she said, Well, do you know who has LSD? And I said, Yes. She said, Well, what's his name? And I told her, And where does he live? Well, I said, He lives in San Francisco. He's the rep for... Sandals, we got all our LSD straight from Sandals. And she said, Well, I have an idea that it's just <laughs> might work. <laughs> you go up and find him, and you tell him that you're there with a message from Patty Simpson. And Patty Simpson says, Please give Gary some LSD because Patty Simpson really needs it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just remembering that just, you know, throws chills up my spine because how do you tell kids that the government is fucked? (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. You know, any of those government people could come and talk with these kids. And that kind of work that Gary did with young children will most likely never be done again due to all of the restrictions now in place. Uh, Valid restrictions in my opinion, but restrictions nonetheless which prevent this type of research being done with children. Fortunately, uh, Gary did write several papers about his research, and while most of his papers have now been moved to some archive that's uh, somewhere in the bowels of Purdue University in Indiana, Well, about 10 years before he died, Gary gave me several of his more important papers to post on the net. And today, if you go to PsychedelicSalon.com and click on the Saloners link in the top menu, you'll be taken to a page that, uh, in the right sidebar, provides a link to where I've posted those papers. So uh, check them out if you get a chance. I I think that they'll really amaze you at what he accomplished, uh, even if you're not a scientist. 
As I said, uh, I was fortunate to become a close friend of Gary's, and his stories about these children never ceased to amaze me. One day, in fact, he told me that after an LSD session with the children, uh, one of them said to him, One day there will be more of us than there are of them. (laughs) And uh, a little bit of trivia for the world travelers among us. When Timothy Leary and his little band were expelled from Mexico, they went to Antigua, where they stayed in a motel called the Bucket of Blood. (laughs) Well, a few years ago, I checked on Google Earth, and it was still there. So if you ever go to Antigua, you can experience a little psychedelic history by staying in that legendary hotel. And uh, that, by the way, is where they were when their stash of LSD, the one they so foolishly buried on a beach, was washed out to sea. Yet one day, uh, perhaps hundreds of vials of Sandoz acid may yet wash up on some beach. Now, you can hear uh, that and other stories by Gary and Myron in past episodes of these podcasts, and, well, I think that some of my podcasts also include stories of the days when Gary Fisher was a close friend of Aldous and Laura Huxley, and uh, also in several early podcasts, both Myron and Gary tell stories uh, about their interactions with Timothy Leary, and I think those stories are also well worth the time to uh, search out among the interviews that I did with each of them. Now, uh, I think that it's time for us to travel across the Atlantic and hear from a man who, in my opinion, did even more than Terence McKenna to revitalize the psychedelic movement. And he is Fraser Clark, who actually became a legend while he was still alive. Many of us talk the talk, but in every pore of his being, Fraser also walked the walk. What I'm going to play right now is part of the talk that Fraser Clark gave here in the States at Stanford University in 1996 when he was a guest lecturer there. And his talk was titled, Rave Culture and the End of the World as We Know It. So there we were with our, our zippy uh, philosophy. I was in, putting out a magazine at that time called the Encyclopedia Psychedelica. And I was predicting a mass outbreak of consciousness raising among the youth. And boom, just as we were printing that, the acid house party scene, now called the rave scene, burst through my door. Well, let me back up a little bit and and put this again in some context. The reason so many people became hippies, including me in the 60s, there there were three components to it. There was a political component... There was an ecological component, and there was a a personal spiritual component. The political component I've kind of touched on, and that was basically that we saw politics, the old competitive politics, as just that, competitive and destructive. You know, the the opposition is is very duteous to oppose. I mean, maybe it worked 300 years ago, but it's it's definitely not the system we need today. So hippies were saying a plague and all that. We don't want anything to do with that kind of competitive system. The ecological component was this. When, if you remember, Tim Leary advised everybody to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Drop out of the sick system, which was becoming a threat to the planet. That was basically the point. So, when you made the decision, as I did in 1965, after I took my honours degree in psychology, to, to become a hippie, really, what it was a brave personal decision to basically reduce my own personal level of consumption by about 70%. I decided I won't have a fancy sports car, I won't have my own private 
motor launch. I won't, I'll give up that lifestyle. I'll become a traveler. I'll see the world. I'll write in poetry. I'll live on beaches and I'll read fine literature and I'll go for that. I don't, I'll lower my consumption level by about 70%. And that's what I've done ever since, basically. Uh, that was what the planet needed and that's what the hippie opted for. Now, I've lived that life ever since, until I became a zippy, basically, in the, in the mid-80s. And I had to invent the zippy concept, really, to kind of explain to myself who I was and who my friends were and why. Now, I put it to you that if everybody at that time in the 60s who, who were armed with the same information about the planet had made the same decision, if everybody had voluntarily opted to reduce their consumption level and their expectations, we would now be living on a very beautiful, harmoniously developed planet with none of these problems we have now. But people didn't have the courage, and so now I think they're going to have to live through the objective result of, of, of they are not making those decisions then. They're now, I think, being forced to lower their consumption level. It's not so clear here, but it's coming, and it's very clear in Europe and a lot of the West. Now, the personal spiritual component brings us directly to the rave. The hippie conclusion was that mankind, the Western man, was basically stuck in his head and that the only chance for the planet, because the Western system was a threat to the planet, the only chance for the planet was that was the, invention, the discovery, or more likely the rediscovery, of some kind of technique or some kind of technology which would one by one, through all the people in the West, individually, one by one, put them through a process where they got out of their heads and back into their heart and their body. In other words, as, as George Gurdjieff, a great teacher in the early 20th century, said, he called, it, he called mankind three-brain beings. We have a an intellectual brain, an emotional brain, and a physical moving brain. And these brains are equal in every way. One is not more important than the other, but they should work in harmony, all three together, as a team, cooperating. Now, that was the hippie analysis of what would have to happen in the West. We would need some kind of strategy, some kind of technology, some kind of technique to enable everybody to get this balance again. Today, every high street in Britain is offering just such a commodity, rave, non-stop, rhythmic, African-style, shamanic dance music, which is taking an entire generation out of their heads and back into their hearts and their bodies. So that is actually happening to hundreds of thousands of young people all across Europe, and it's now spreading into America. So... This is, um, this is Kate, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be talking about trans states, so I thought it would be a good idea if uh, we had an actual uh, example of it going. Young people dance like this for hours on end. Um, I'll be coming to that very... So anyway, there I was. I was editing the, and publishing the encyclopedia and, and predicting a, a mass consciousness-raising outbreak among young people when suddenly... Uh, these two young guys, Scooby Doobies, they were called. They were a design team, and they'd found it, the, the magazine I was doing, which was kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, an idealistic, small circulation, hippie-oriented 
magazine and they found that and they thought that was the message they wanted and they were ravers they explained to me they were ravers and they came into my office and they were dressed very colorfully totally unlike the punk thing that was totally fashionable then they had no rings through their noses none of this stuff they were very colorfully dressed and they explained to me that they were going to acid house parties and they were raving all night and they got me to go into my very first, as they were called then, acid house party, now called Raves. And as soon as I saw uh, my first acid house party, I knew this was the consciousness raising movement, the beginning of this very thing that I was predicting and praying for, really. My first uh, rave I went to was put on by Tony Colston Hater, who, who ran a posse called Sunrise, and he was the acid house king of that time when rave burst out in England. This is 1987, 1988. So he was on the TV, he was being interviewed. He was the, the famous acid house king. There was 20,000 kids in a field and they were going for it all night. That was the very first one I went to. Um, I remember him getting up, uh, interrupting the music, which is quite rare, and announcing that um, he said they've hit us with 12 injunctions to stop this but they haven't managed to stop it so I also picked up that this was a, there was a strong energy behind this it was young people determined on doing what they wanted to do as long as they didn't harm anyone else and they were not and it, there was an element of rebelliousness they've hit us with 12 injunctions and they haven't managed to stop us so I thought I paid attention um what did it look like? They had um, it was a massive field with 20,000 people dancing. It. They had a big dipper. They had a Ferris wheel. They had stalls selling champagne, hot dog stands all the way around this field. My first impression was this should be surrounded by a massive Woodstock hippie festival with the rave in the middle. Perfect. But there were differences, and um, I don't want to. I mean, this is some of this is my theory. Not every raver would necessarily agree with what I'm saying. In fact, if you stay for the question and answer, you'll probably hear a few objections. But so here are some of the differences between raves and and the hippie thing. The main thing to notice is that these ravers were yuppies. I remember that very first rave. I sat down with a, a group of young people, and this girl was saying to me, "Isn't it great?" You work really hard all weekend, all week, and then you rave really hard all weekend. So she was quite happy. She accepted the whole competitive system. She was doing quite well within it. She was adding raving at the weekend as her weekend thing. She was not trying to change society. The, um, these were yuppies. They were smart. They were intelligent. They were savvy. And they were entrepreneurial. If you think of Tony Colson here, this, this was 20,000 kids. They were paying about $40 to work it out. He was taking $800,000 in one night in a big open field just outside London. The take was $800,000. So this was not a hippie-inspired thing. This was young, yuppie, entrepreneurial-based. Now, if you probably all know about Mrs. Thatcher, and you've probably got mixed opinions, but Mrs. Thatcher's main call was for a revival in England of the entrepreneurial spirit. If she had really meant that, then she would have been behind the whole, the whole raver thing and it would now be Britain's greatest export to the world. But somehow she didn't, 
she wasn't. She tried to stamp it out. In fact, if she'd supported it, it would now be Britain's greatest e- e- cultural export. Um, but what, what it boiled down to was Mrs. Thatcher's message was actually puritanical. It was mean-spirited. She was protecting her own conservative supporting industrial barons and the whole status quo. She wasn't really encouraging the entrepreneurial spirit when it got right down to people just doing it. And so when these kids, these yuppies who were part of the system up till then saw the full power of the state turned against them, for what? For dancing or for organizing it and then charging somebody to go into it? Totally entrepreneurial. They were shocked and they began to question the system. And they began to be radicalized. And that is the history of, of the rave scene ever since. That if she had gone along with it, I think now it would be a very, con- possibly it would be a very controllable new kind of entertainment. But she didn't. She fought it. And she, and it was radicalized and now it's quite, there's quite a large element of social protest or desire for social change within it at its base. In a way, uh, it really isn't fair of me to just play that rather serious talk by Fraser. Because if you knew him, you also knew that Fraser was a very joyous person. However, I do like his talk at Stanford because it shows what a thoughtful person he also was. As I said earlier, I think that Fraser uh, may be even more important to where we are today than Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna, particularly in regards to the worldwide dance and festival communities. As the really old-timers know, Terence stepped out of the shadows of Esalen once he began making appearances on what was then called the Rave Circuit. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Fraser Clark at his Megatripolis Club in London where some of this first took place. And you can uh, hear one of those appearances by Terence at the Megatripolis in podcast number 335. Now, one of the reasons that I want to be sure that you don't forget about Fraser Clark is so that you also remember how risky it was back in the 90s to even go to a rave, let alone produce one. Someday I hope to be able to podcast a series of interviews with people who were instrumental in producing some of the early raves, but uh, not today. Right now, it's time to move on to the one and only Terrence McKenna. And if you go to the podcast page on our website, in the right sidebar is a drop-down menu titled Categories. There, uh, under the subsection labeled People, when you scroll down to the T's, you will see that next to Terrence McKenna's name is the number 235, which is the number of podcasts here in the salon featuring the Bard McKenna. So how, uh, I wondered... Do I come up with something short that gives a good representation of Terence McKenna? Well, for me at least, Terence was the man who brought DMT into the light. So I wanted to play one of his descriptions of a DMT experience. However, there was so much more to Terence than just DMT. So what I've done is to take the easy way out. I've got several hundred little McKenna sound bites that I've set aside while working on these podcasts. And they are anything from five seconds long to several minutes long. In fact, I've converted around a hundred of them to MP3 format and linked to them on that Slaughter's page that I just mentioned. So what I've done right now is uh, for this little Terence McKenna bit is to, at random, pick a few sound bites and uh, place them both before and after the DMT bit. 
There's no real rhyme or reason to this collection of sound bites, but it's still fun to listen to the one and only Terence McKenna. I've always been sort of a knowledge freak. I mean, I was a very weird kid. Well, yeah, but how much time have you spent loaded? That's the important question. To go from birth to the grave without ever encountering DMT is, to my mind, like going from birth to the grave without ever having a sexual experience. It means you skated through life. You never got it. I mean, I think of the mainland as Blade Runner land. It's uh, amphetamine land. It's availability land. It's strontium-90 land. It's newt land. It's, uh, you know, just a, a horrific scene. Uh, you know, it's not like camping in cornfields waiting for flying saucers. If you camp in the cornfield and take six dried grams, uh, it will find you. Uh, <coughs> and yet, clearly, I'm some kind of cannabis-smoking lunatic. So how did that happen? Well, it's just the principle of the idiot savant, I think. We are beginning to embed ourselves into a, a cultural membrane of some sort. You know, t a 10-minute DMT, DMT trip is worth 20 years of academic pharmacology, art history, <laughs> psychology, and all this other malarkey. Because then you just say, okay, I got it, I got it. The things I encounter that I call elves or gnomes... It's just a gloss. I mean, they're small, and they have the archetype. They, they're more like leprechauns, and this maybe raises a racial issue. Uh, <laughs> and they, they make things, and they live in domed spaces. And, you know, the mythology of elves is that they live under hills, and they're master craftsmen, makers of jewelry and machines and stuff like that that is exactly the deal and their and their dead souls is what they are interestingly the whole notion of fairyland is uh, when saint patrick arrived in ireland to convert the pagan irish to christianity they were practicing what is called the fairy faith they believed in in little people. They believed they were the souls of the departed. They believed they were everywhere around us and they believed that certain people who had the eye could see these fairies. And they believed this with such conviction that Patrick quickly realized that he was not going to get anywhere converting the Irish unless he made a place for this phenomenon. So he invented purgatory. Purgatory was invented by St. Patrick. It was not church doctrine before that time. And he then, very successful, and, and if you are not Catholic or don't truck in this domain, you may not know what purgatory is, is uh, a place exactly like hell, except you eventually get out. And, and uh, it's where you do penance for your sins. Well, he was so successful converting the pagan Irish with this concept that when word reached the Holy See, the Vatican, 
uh, it was made church dogma, and then it was very successfully used to convert the pagan Slavs, who also had a belief in a kind of fairyland. Uh, so I don't know what this thing about dead souls is puzzling to me. It, it, it even with my predilection for the peculiar and the psychedelic, I find it hard to completely embrace the notion that these are ancestors alive in some other dimension. But in some ways, that is the most conservative explanation. After all, if you believe they're extraterrestrials who came from the stars, then you're supposing and hypothesizing all kinds of things. Since they are interested in human beings, since they can converse with human beings, since they seem to know our boundaries and limitations, they must be some kind of human being. And then the choices are they are a prenatal form of existence. In other words, souls that never incarnated into a body and are like up there waiting for the stork or something. Uh, or they are some future state of humanity where apparently we no longer have bodies and we've changed ourselves into self-dribbling jeweled basketballs for God knows what reason. Or uh, they are post- life forms. They are people who once walked the earth as you and I do, but have gone beyond into this other circumstance. One of the things that is, to me, almost as puzzling as the elfin nature of the DMT encounter is that after you've been in there four or five times, and it takes a while because at first it's just absolute shock and disbelief, I mean, you bring very little out of it. You're just appalled, and that's about all you can say about it. But after a while, I realized uh, that the, the motif of the DMT encounter, and I guess I should describe it briefly, when you burst into the DMT space, you have the impression that you're in a domed space, approximately the size of the length of this room, but round, with a somewhat lower ceiling, indirectly lit, warm, comfortable. And the moment you get your bearings, they're there. In fact, as you break into that space, they cheer. And some of you may know that song by the Pink Floyd from years ago, the gnomes have learned a new way to say hooray. So you break into this space. They scream their greeting. And while you're just trying to get oriented, they come bounding forward, uh, uh, somewhat like dogs, actually. And, and they begin to lick your face and crawl all over you and jump in and out of your body. And, and they say, we love you. We love you. We, you send so many. You come so rarely. Welcome, welcome. And so you're like, you know, trying to take your pulse, trying to make sure you're breathing because you really, you have the impression this is so serious that I may be dead. I may have just simply killed myself <laughs> ten seconds ago, and, and this is what's happening. They use their voices to make objects. 
They speak a language which you do not hear, but which you see. You not only see it, you feel it. And so they, they use language to cause syntactical, architectonic, techno structures to condense out of the air. And when they, sh- and they show you these things. They're proud of them. They come bounding forward and jump up and down in front of you and say, look at this, look at this. And they're all competing like children to show you this stuff. And as you direct your attention into one of these objects, you see beyond any power of contradiction that this thing that they're showing you is impossible. They're constantly transforming themselves in the most amazing way. Mm -hmm. And they're showing you this stuff, and they're saying, do what we're doing. You can do this. Use your voice to make something. And you're like, you know, this is now 30 seconds into this experience. (laughs) Reality has been obliterated, and you're just in this place. Well, uh, and, and one can do this. And it, there is a glossolalia. And then these objects condense out of the air. And the objects themselves are somehow alive. You put one down and they, they emit sound and make subsets of their own type. And all of this is just, you know, you're just like, my God, what has happened? Uh, the strange thing about DMT is it doesn't affect your mind in the ordinary sense so that you're not ecstatic or freed of anxiety or you're exactly who you were before this started happening with all your neuroses, fears, doubts, and you're saying, you know, is this all right? Am I going to be okay? Does it? How long is it going to last? So forth and so on. But the point I wanted to make that I got started on a few minutes ago is after many of these exposures to this, I have realized, and I think I'm right, that this environment into which you are catapulted, bizarre as it is, it is someone very strange. It's their idea of a reassuring environment for a human being. They are as mar- they are so marvelous to you because you've never seen anything like it. But on the other hand, you've just been born into this world and trying. And and this is why I think perhaps it is a bardo, perhaps it is an after death. Uh, I don't know if maternity ward is quite the phrase, but it's uh, it's uh, it's where you start your existence in this other dimension. But in the same way that a baby lying in a bassinet in a maternity ward could hardly conceive of growing up to drive Ferraris, collect art, and crush the competition, uh, you lying there in this nursery, in this, in this playpen, how can you extrapolate what lies beyond that space? Because clearly the entire space has been prepared for baby. And you're the baby. <laughs> So you can't figure out, you know, is this the entirety of this universe or how far does it extend? And I I suspect that when you die, this is what you get and that familiarity with the after-death vehicle, that DMT actually is a thanatoptic compound and that 
this trip is you are peeking over the edge into eternity. And, you know, questions you never thought you would have answers to are answered just, you know, is there life after death? You bet. Next question. Uh, (laughs) On that note, uh, let's go to dinner. Thank you. I don't consider myself Catholic in reflex, and I'm trying to be a good anarchist, and I lean toward the idea that man is perfect. But reading about a group of people who absolutely believed and acted this out uh, pushes you up against it. Because, you know, if man is perfect, theft is all right. Murder is all right. Murder of your own children is all right. On and on and on. So then you think, well, then, so, hmm, so apparently I don't think man is perfect. Well, then, so where do I draw the line? Let me say to the group, as far as Amanita and Muscaria is concerned, don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> uh, I mean, this, it's, you, you know, out there on the edge of the bardo. As I say, I'm, I, I don't think of myself as a guru. I think of myself as a doorman. Uh, I don't, I should make it clear, you know, I don't believe this stuff. I don't believe this stuff, (laughs) so says the Bard McKenna. And if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you've heard him say that a number of times in a number of different ways. But I'll let you be your own judge about the words and wisdom of Terrence McKenna. For my part, uh, well, I'm quite certain that he believed a good bit of what he had to say. And uh, before I go, I'll still play a couple more short sound bites from the man who has become our favorite here in the salon. But first, there is one more person that we are going to hear from today, and that is the one and only Sasha Shulgin. While many of us uh, think that the person who first brought us all together was Terence McKenna, or maybe it was Timothy Leary for a few of the really old-timers here, in my case, it was Sasha Shulgin who played the most instrumental role in my becoming involved with the psychedelic community. As you may know, the first psychoactive substance that I took, even before my first toke of cannabis, was MDMA. And while Sasha Shulgin didn't actually invent MDMA, he was the first person who resurrected it after laying dormant for many decades. The paper that he wrote about it is what propelled it into the public mind, and uh, I know that there are a lot of people here in the salon, including myself, who have danced under its influence all night. And while we may have danced for an hour or so without its influence, I don't think we would have danced all night. So, for me, there's no question in my mind that the original rave movement would never have taken off as fast and as big as it did without the influence of this important substance, which is now being used, of course, to treat PTSD, among other things. Sasha's tireless work over many, many years in designing and testing literally hundreds of psychoactive molecules is completely unequaled in human history and most likely will never be repeated. If ever there was a person who deserved to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, it was Sasha Shulgin, the greatest chemist who has ever graced this planet. Now, let's have a few words of wisdom from our beloved Sasha. There was a meeting last year when uh, Dr. Hoffman 
came and his opening sentence was, do you expect the shame and you're going to get a chemist? <laughs> when I actually, when I was first asked by Dr. Uh, Robert McC- Gordon McCutcheon to come here tonight and talk about whatever I wanted to do, my first impression, as long as uh, I allowed my first impression, was to decline. I had, uh, after all, I am a student of chemistry and of pharmacology and not really a student of philosophy and religion. And I felt I had probably contributed as much as I could last year when I took chalk to blackboard and do hexagons and tryptamine rings and gave my impression of what on a molecule caused it to do what. Uh, but my wife intervened. Why not tell them just why you do what you do? Well, it got me lost into an interesting question. I never had actually spoken to myself and said, you know, why do you do what you do? The flippant answer is always at hand. Well, one does it because it's there to be done. The Mount Everest routine. I climb the mountain because it's there to be climbed. But that is, of course, not the reason I do the research I do. Whenever this question would come up in a seminar or during a panel discussion, I'd place special emphasis on the word psychotomimetic. The word has been used quite a bit today. A term that is usually used by the scientific community uh, when they wish to speak about the psychedelic drugs. The term psychedelic does not find a good audience in uh, the psychiatric or in the chemical or in the medical literature. It carries a meta-message of drug use, drug encouragement, drug uh, proselytizing. And as a a result, the word is not often encountered. In its origin, as was pointed out, it comes from psychoto, meaning in essence psychosis, and mimesis, meaning the imitation of. And this, indeed, is a term that very early in the, in the work in this area, uh, they had been given these materials because they had uh, been cast in the role of causing uh, syndrome, causing symptoms that would reflect the, uh, the character of mental illness. And it's felt by studying the, the effects of these materials in normal subjects, you might be able to glean some insight as to the mechanisms or the, at least the descriptions and, and um, definitions of the syndrome when seen in people who are spontaneously ill. The, um, this explanation, the search for new psychotomimetics for materials that would be more exacting in definition of psychosis, is completely logical in that all the hallucinogenics, not all, but most of the hallucinogenics, the um, psychedelics that are known, can be classified into materials that are indoles, and there are many in this area, the tryptamines, the more convoluted uh, carbolines, LSD as an ergot-type indole, or it can be classified as phenethylamines. And there are perhaps some three or four score that are in this classification, the analogs of mescaline compound that's been mentioned several times, or the substitution uh, variants of mescaline, or the alpha-methyl compounds that have given rise to the materials that are lumped chemically together as the amphetamines. And there are two principal neurotransmitters in the brain. One is an indole, and this is serotonin. One is a phenethylamine, namely dopamine. And it's very desirable from the point of the neurochemist to find pigeonholes that can classify things. Here we have a group of psychedelics that are all indoles, and we have a neurotransmitter that's indolic, serotonin. Here's a group that are all phenethylamines, and we have a neurotransmitter that's a phenethylamine. All we have to do is understand why all of these work here and all of those work there, and we shall now know how the neurotransmitters work in the brain. And once we know that, we'll be able to cure mental illness. Well, it's um, an appealing, and it has not been a particularly rewarding classification. And the explanation, beside being logical, is, is quite safe, because it's an unthreatening explanation. It's easily accepted by the academic and the administrative community. 
But the explanation is still not the explanation of why I do what I do. My work is indeed dedicated to the development of tools, but tools for quite a different purpose. And here's where I want to get quite away from, from chemistry and into some of my own personal thoughts. I'd like to lay a little background to establish a framework for these tools, and in part to define them, and in part to give emphasis to an urgency that I really feel associated with them. First, I am a very firm believer in the reality of a balance in all aspects of the human theater. When there seems to be a development of move that away, somehow, very shortly, or almost in concert, there is a move this away that keeps things in some delicate balance. If there must be a dichotomization of concepts into good and evil, then all good seems to contain its unexpressed evil, and all evil is unexpressed good. Within the human mind, there coexists the eros, the life-loving, the self-perpetrating force, with the thanatos, the self-destructive death wish. Both are present in each of us, but are usually separated by a very difficult wall, a very difficult to penetrate wall, the unconscious. One definition of the tools I seek is that I, they may allow words of a vocabulary, a vocabulary which might allow each human being to, to more consciously and more clearly communicate with the interior of his own mind and psyche. This may be called a vocabulary of awareness. A person who becomes increasingly aware of and so begins to acknowledge the existence of the two opposite contributors to his motives and decisions may begin to make choices which are knowledgeable. And the learning process that follows such choices is the path that leads to wisdom. But just as there is a balance within the mind that needs establishment, there is an interesting record of balances of the same sort in society. Let's look for a few minutes at some of the coincidences that have kept our human race in, in a rather precarious balance. Throughout the early centuries of the current millennium, they were carry out some of the most viciously inhuman wars that were known to man, all in the name of the forces of religion and the horrors of the Inquisition with its lethal intolerance of heresy. And yet it was during these, these dark years that the structure of alchemy was established. Not to change base metals into noble ones, as is often thought, but to acquire knowledge through the study of matter. The work of the alchemists extended up to the Age of Enlightenment with the urges of rationalism and of skepticism. And it was always directed toward the learning process. The reward of alchemistic effort has been simply stated as the effort to achieve the transmutation of base metals into gold. But as Ralph pointed out just a bit ago, this is not the actual reward. The value was the doing and the redoing and the redoing of the process of distillation, of sublimation, of condensation, of precipitation. It was a continual, ever more exact effort to understand these processes that from the learning of the process, one would be able to find a unity between the physical and the spiritual world. It was the doing and the redoing itself that was, was the reward. In the last hundred years or so, this learning process has evolved into what we call science. However, there has been a subtle shift in the goal from the process, of the process itself to the results of the process. In this age of science, it is only the end result, the gold, that really matters. It is not the act of achieving, but the achievement itself that brings one the acknowledgement of his peers, that brings recognition from the outside world, that results in the wealth, in wealth and in influence and in power. And these end achievements, these results, 
show the same dichotomy of directions which was so evident from the previous centuries. For years, there had been no separation of values. Neither direction had taken the colors of good or for evil. But still, there were incredible coincidences of timing. For example, in 1895, Wilhelm Conrad von Lenken observed that when electricity was applied to an evacuated tube containing certain gases, a nearby plate covered with barium platinocyanide emitted a visible glow. And the next year, in 1896, Antoine-Henri Becquerel found that these same metal-producing emanations were being emitted from uranium. Radioactivity had been discovered. But it was just in the following year, at 11.45 a.m. on the 23rd of November of 1897, that Arthur Hefter consumed an alkaloid that he had isolated from the peyote, dumpling cactus, brought to the Western world by the irrepressible pharmacologist Louis Levine. As Hefter wrote in his notes, and this is a quotation following 150 milligrams of mescaline, from time to time, dots with the most brilliant colors floated across the field of vision. Later on, landscapes, halls, architectural scenes also appeared. Mescaline had also been discovered. During the 1920s and 1930s, both worlds, that of the physical sciences involving radiation and that of the psychopharmacological sciences involving psychotropic materials, continued to develop without any clear sense of polarity, without the mine is good and yours is evil duality that was soon to come. Radioactivity and radiation were becoming the mainstays of medicine. X-ray photography was invaluable in diagnosis, and radium therapy was broadly used in treatment. Controlled and localized radiation could destroy malignant tissue while sparing the host. And in the area of psychology, there were parallel developments. The theories of Freud and Jung were being developed into increasingly useful clinical tools and approaches to mental illness. And the basis of experimental psychology was laid in the pioneering studies of Pavlov. Another coincidence in timing, which in retrospect started a dividing of science onto separate paths, occurred during World War II. In the late 1942, Enrico Fermi and several other scientists at the University of Chicago demonstrated for the first time ever that nuclear fission could be achieved and could be controlled by man. The age of Unlimited power and freedom from dependency upon our dwindling fossil reserves had begun. Just the next year, at 4.20 p.m. on the 19th of April, Albert Hoffman consumed a measured amount of a compound which he had first synthesized some five years earlier. As Hoffman subsequently reported, as a quotation following 250 micrograms, after the crisis of confusion and despair, I began to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegated, opening and closing themselves in circles and spirals. LSD had also been discovered. But then, still, and up until the last decade, it was the rich promise of the nuclear age, first with the power and potential of fission, and later with the virtually limitless potential of fusion energy that carried the banner and the hopes of man. And the area of the hallucinogenics was categorized as negative, psycho psychosis imitating, psychotomimetic. It was not until someone in the 1970s, sometime in the 1970s, that a strange and a fascinating and a rather frightening reversal of roles had take, take, took place. The knowledge of nuclear fission and fusion took on a death-loving aspect. 
with country after country joining the fraternity of those skilled in the capacity for the eradication of the human experiment. And to have such power leads to the threat to use such power, which in time will actually lead to its use. But, as I said earlier, when one thing develops, there seems to spring forth a balancing, a compensatory counterpart. This balance can be realized with the psychedelic drugs. What had been simply tools for the study of psychosis at best, or for escapist self-gratification at worst, suddenly assume the character of tools of enlightenment and of some form of transcendental communication. If man's alter ego, ego, his thanatos, had been entrusted with the imperpetual knowledge of how he can completely destroy himself and this extraordinary experiment, then some development will, must occur at the eros side of his psyche that will and must afford the learning of how to live with his perpetual knowledge. It is a communication between these two sides of the mind that requires an extraordinary vocabulary. Where do these words come from, the words of this vocabulary? All depend upon an intimate insight into the working of the human mind, but this can be approached in many ways. The study of religion, of meditation, of self-yielding, provides a peace, but in my mind also tends toward a retreat and hence a capitulation. The efforts of amalgamation, to amalgamate the two sides of the mind as seen in the Tao of Physics and the rich findings of parallelisms between the Eastern and Western philosophies may eventually explain all and allow some unification for the human purpose. But I feel, along with many others, that the efforts being invested in the technology of destruction does not allow sufficient time. It is possibly only with the psychedelic drugs that words of vocabulary can be established which might tunnel through the subconscious between the conflicting aspects of the mind and psyche. It is here that I feel my skill lies. And this is exactly why I do what I do. Where do we stand as of today? In the last handful of years, the forces of government and nationalism have amassed an unprecedented arsenal of destructive power. The power is in the current arsenals of the world, if restructured into Hiroshima-strength weapons, to detonate one bomb every minute, on the minute, for the next two years. And the rationalization, the rationalized need to do so is becoming manifest at a frightening pace. But in the last handful of years, a number of tools of communication have increased at a like rate. There are currently nearly 200 psychedelic drugs known and described, some touching at one, some at another, of the fibers that unify our minds. By learning each of their structures of sensory communication in turn, we might find a form of communication that would disarm our destructive compulsion. A way to disarm the destructive compulsion in our species. Now, if that isn't a goal worth working for, well, then I don't know what would be. Over the years, uh, I've taken psychedelic medicines with quite a few people, people of all types from all walks of life. And there are two things that I've noticed that they all have in common. And these are a heightened state of awareness regarding the ecological plight of our planet and a love for one another that transcends family, religion, nationality, or even race. And so I'll continue to produce these podcasts uh, in the hope that over time the facts about the nature and power of these medicines to heal us humans becomes more widely known each and every day. Now before I sign off, I want to be sure that you 
know that all of the episodes of these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are now also available on SoundCloud. If you go to our main site at psychedelicsalon.com and click on the podcast link, in the right sidebar you're going to see a link to our SoundCloud page. And there you'll find a direct link to the group that holds all of these podcasts in reverse chronological order. That is, with the most recent one first. Also on that page, you're going to find links to several of the playlists that I've set up. As you will see, the uh, Terrence McKenna list, not counting today's podcast, has 166 tracks in it, which don't count the 43 tracks in the Trialogues playlist, uh, of which he is in most of them. In the Psychedelic Elders playlist, you'll find 107 podcasts listed, and uh, that includes more than 50 featuring Timothy Leary. And if you're a SoundCloud user, then you already know that you can not only create your own playlists of these podcasts, all of them may also be streamed directly from the web links. And in the playlist that I've set up, there are over 70 podcasts in the Planque Norte list, 54 in Women's Perspectives, 24 in Mind States Conferences, 34 podcasts uh, included information and live news broadcasts during the Occupy Wall Street phase of the Occupy movement, and there are over 50 tracks in the ayahuasca list. Uh, also, I've been informed that the salon has now been approved for inclusion in Google Music. I haven't had a chance to check that out yet, but please let me know via the contact link on our program notes page if you uh, find us there. Now, before I go, there are two final Terrence McKenna sound bites that I'd like to play for you. The first one is about the fact, at least <laughs> what I happen to believe is a fact, that the worldwide psychedelic community of like-minded people are, in a very positive way, minded mutants who hold the potential of transforming our species. And that is followed by what I can best say is a call to action. One which I hope you'll take to heart, as I know you will. The future evolution of mankind is going to be based on these states. But the, the last point I want to make is one about how evolution occurs. It isn't that a mutation happens and it is confers greater adaptability upon an individual and therefore that individual and his offspring... Uh, uh, numerically gain over competitor uh, individuals of the same species. This is not how it works. The way it works is you have constant uh, mutating of a gene pool from the influx of cosmic radiation and other factors. There is always a uh, low level of mutagens, uh, of mutants in a population. But they are of no consequence as long as the selective parameters remain the same. But when the selective parameters change suddenly, these individuals who were previously masked in the gen general population, the selective advantage that they have now comes immediately to the fore and they act very quickly and critically to send the evolution of a given species off in a different direction. This is why uh, the fossil record progresses in fits and starts, because sudden shifts of environment cause the apparent emergence of new types. It isn't that they cause it, it's that the new types were always there 
but not with any advantage. It's that the new situation has conferred a sudden advantage on them, and they are moving then into positions of uh, dominance in the population or the society, if we're talking about human beings. I think that the psychedelic experience is like that at the present level. It has conferred, uh, there is a population of different people in the general population. And as conditions change, these people will be seen to have uh, adaptive advantages uh, without being metaphysical about it. An obvious adaptive advantage is uh, what I call the deconditioning effect. That we live in a jungle of propaganda, you know, buy this, believe this, wear this. If uh, if you have a symbiotic relationship with a deconditioning agent, you're much uh, more likely to thread your way through that with your soul and your bank account intact. So uh, this is this is one way of thinking of it. That what the what the psychedelics really do, I think, is release us from cultural machinery and put you right up against the human essence and say you no longer have to pretend that you're Scotch Irish or Witoto or Jewish. You can actually explore the human modality independent of the inertia of these exterior labels. And so it places responsibility, it uh, raises questions of validity, existential uh, 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 honesty with oneself, and I think it promotes uh, the moral life, which I don't think happens if you buy deeply into myths of the tribe, if you're a devoted practitioner of Marxism, fascism, capitalism. I don't think these things will lead you to the moral life because they are not, uh, they don't arise out of experience. Experience is everything. These are drugs of experience. Uh, it's very important to take the moment seriously, uh, reincarnation and all these things aside. What if this were your unique opportunity to unravel it all? and not to be caught in dissolution. Because I think that there is, a, there is a potential for immortality, but it isn't assured. It is something which comes to the courageous. So I submit to you that what we represent is a fifth column. A fifth column that represents the best aspirations that human community is capable of. A fifth column that is willing to look at the structure of the psyche in contrast to the, the mess of society and willing to dream. I'm reminded of William Faulkner in his Nobel address. He said, man will not simply endure, man will prevail. Now, of course, he should have said humanity, but this was years ago. But the thought is there. We have the tools, the intellect, the will to create a caring global culture. It isn't going to come without a recognition of the power of the psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience is the birthright 
of every human being on the planet. It is as much a basic part of each and every one of us as our sexuality, our, our national identity, our consciousness of self. And any society which attempts to hold back or impede this dimension of self-expression, when the history of that society is written, it will be called barbarous. The movement toward legitimizing psychedelics I see as part of the broader movement throughout human history that gave us the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, women's suffrage. In the future, it will be unimaginable that governments once regulated the substances that people use to explore personal growth. It is the mark of a barbarous culture, and we are here to raise a light to say truth is not so easily swept aside. One doesn't just say no to truth. <laughs> truth... Truth requires engagement, it requires courage, it requires a sense of where we have been and of where we are going. And what is preached all around us is the quick fix, the fast buck, the temporary solution, the throwaway and disposable culture that ends up throwing away and disposing of human lives. And what we place against that is a humanism that does not rise out of theory. It's a humanism that rises out of experience. The experience that informed the great mystics of every religion is not something that we strain for throughout a life of self-discipline and self-subjugation. That isn't it. It is our birthright. Each of us, Dr. Hoffman and his discoveries, place this dimension within the reach of all of us. Dr. Hoffman and his discoveries place this dimension on a social agenda that cannot be denied, that will not wait. If not now, when? If not us, who? It's that simple. We are moving now, I think, unfortunately, into yet a darker political night in terms of the larger society around us. And I make an analogy to the coming of the Dark Ages. But what the Dark Ages promoted that is going to work in our favor were monastic gatherings of like-minded people who preserved information through the time of darkness and social ignorance toward a new day when it could be utilized to mitigate the suffering of men and women everywhere. LSD is, to my mind, first and foremost, the greatest medical discovery of the 20th century, and I use it in the sense of ameliorating pain, creating caring, promoting unity, 
healing not so much of the individual psyche, although certainly its impact in that dimension is tremendous, but ultimately as a deconditioning agent, allowing us to move beyond the confines of historical society to see what we could be, what we have been, and what in fact we have the energy to be in the future. Thank you very much. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.